You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I've always known. <laughs> you tell me when you're drunk. <laughs> what is the worst uh, social behaviour you have ever seen a comedian exhibit? The whole thing was on speakerphone. It was so weird. What did she? What did she answer? Me? Fuck you! <laughs> if you guess it, I, I will say yes. It's now time to play the beautiful game. It just gets wider the further down you get. Because that man is a goddamn hero. When they go, oh, I just smashed, I just did this gig in Dubai, I smashed it. He'll go, oh, I'm really proud of you. Uh, I'm Chinese. <laughs> but I would like you to visualise the comedian who you hate because you fear you're a little bit like them. To download the full recording of ComCom Pod Redacted live from the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival, as well as a whole host of other exclusive content, become a member of the Inner Circle at comedianscomedian.com slash donate. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hi there, welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here, and today I'm talking to Anuvab Pal, who is a comedian from India, and he is the first comic that's been on the show who is part of the burgeoning Indian comedy scene. I can't believe it's taken me nearly 250 episodes to get my head around this, but as you will hear... The scene is extremely new. We're going to talk a little bit about where it all came from. We're going to talk about uh, Anuvab's process and the differences between the Indian and the British comedy circuits, which are fairly profound, but also have a lot in common. And we're also going to find out a lot about this extremely funny and absolutely charming man. So this is Anuvab Pal. We're at Soho Theatre. Yeah. And how far into your run are you here? I'm afraid. Is it you've just started? Uh, yeah. So five shows. We finished two. Uh, but there were a bunch of warm-ups in Switzerland, country okay. I'd never visited before. Uh-huh. Um, and Cambridge University, there was a gig there where I couldn't see much of the audience, but they looked a lot like, you know, people who would have researched Game of Thrones. You know, there were lots of... <laughs> okay. Long beards and glasses and lots of, you know, people laughing at the most obscure India reference because they're so knowledgeable okay, about Okay, older people rather than younger people. Correct. So, academics. 
Gotcha. Rather than students. Gotcha. Okay. And I'm, if I said something wrong about India, like mentioned some town that was just a lie or whatever, that was the kind of audience I said, that's not true. I went there. <laughs> okay. I researched in that town 20 minutes south of Jaipur for 40 years. I was studying a tortoise. You know, they... Sure. And that must, I mean, presumably that certainly when I gig in foreign countries, I have a certain amount of agency not necessarily with the truth, but I have a certain kind of like, yeah. I'm the guy, you know, I, I feel I find my feet differently, maybe maybe faster in some ways in other countries because I'm like, well, it's like this because I say so. Right. That must have been a slightly unnerving experience. You know, that that is pretty much my whole set, right? A lot of my set is, these bizarre things happen in my culture, what do you think? Now, the great thing about, about Britain, this is my first tour of Britain, is you can't lie to British people. They've been everywhere. You know, like there's a mini version of uh, that guy, David Attenborough, whose shows we get. Sure. Like, it feels like there's a mini version of him in every British person. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, here I am in Canberra, you know, <laughs> next to a hippopotamus. Like, everyone's been everywhere. So you have to be accurate about what you're lying about. Uh, if, okay. This was America. You could say anything. Yeah, 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 <laughs> you know, true. You could say, just we don't have a president. You know, the whole country is run by monkeys. You could say anything and they would give you that license. Here, people have so much knowledge, plus all our intertwined histories. You have to be careful what you're making up. Um, so I tried to lie less and actually find funny things. And the other thing I find that's really interesting is that this is a culture that gives you a very level playing field. You know, in India, I've done show, the only other cultures I've done shows in are India and the United States. And both have a sort of deification culture. Like before a comedian comes on, they're like, he's done this, he's done that, he's done this. He's won the Nobel Prize. You know, he climbed Mount Everest without any legs. Like, and then he comes and huge applause based on credentials. Here, it's like level playing field. Are you funny? Are you not funny? Yes. We're going to give you this hour. You could be from anywhere in the world. We do not care. We love you. If you're good and we dislike, and I, I love that sort of sense of fairness about okay. it. I don't know if it permeates into your everyday culture, but but on stage there's the sense of like absolute fairness um, in that half hour. Like we'll just judge him for that half hour. And did you find that different in America? Did you find that what was the response of an audience in America? They were more like the, you get the credits, you get this guy's been doing comedy for X amount of years and he's from India and he's really exciting. He's released, you know, you have a, a DVD on Amazon Prime. You know, do, do you find that, that that introduction carries you? Yeah, yeah. And, and all that and also they forgive a lot of things. You know, some things that are blatantly not funny or I've made an idiotic observation, which I do often... Um, they'll forgive it, which they wouldn't forgive a local comedian. Okay. You know, or they'll be, they're just extra nice, you know, very earnest. It's like, oh, this is a tourist. He's not a comedian, he's a tourist. And let's show him the best of our country. Let's laugh and clap and support him. Sure. So it can create a false sense of joy. (laughs) (laughs) That's very honest of you. Yeah. It could create this false sense that, oh, I'm very good. But really, they're just like, you come to my house, we'll be nice to you. Yes. Okay. Okay. Whereas here, it's like, we know a lot about you. We know about your culture. We've been there. Are you funny? Yes. And London in particular, I think. I mean, I know you won't have much to judge it against, but I, I think it's. I think a lot of comics' experience of touring is that you finish your tour in London mm. and you've been doing great stuff in uh, everywhere in the UK apart from London. Then you come here and everyone is that much closer to sitting back and going, yeah, we had lots of options tonight. Mm. Do you know mm. what I mean? There's mm. a certain reservation of like, well, you know, you need to prove yourself. Yeah. I mean, I feel that, 
you know, like for example, in India, we have shows Friday and Saturdays. Because the, the comedy venue we do shows in, they're not dedicated comedy venues. So rest of the time, it's being used for an aluminum conference. Okay. Or it's being used for a big industrialist wedding. Or, you know, so there's a sense of like, oh, I've conquered the world by doing a half an hour show on a Saturday. Because you spend the rest of the weekend eating pasta thinking you're a genius. Sure. But here there is a kind of work ethic. You're on for 10 nights. You have to be good for 10 nights. You know, the guy on the fourth night has seven things to do that night. You're one of them. And he's paid the same amount of money as the first night and the last night. And so that kind of discipline is something I'm learning, you know, just to shut up and, and just do the work, you know. And that's, that's a lovely Western ethic I like, you know, that and from what I've seen of other comedians, they're on the road a hundred nights. I've heard Edinburgh is, is 30 nights, relentless sometimes, twice. And, uh, you know, I just, sometimes what happens, like Indian cricket teams will come to Britain and play a test and it'll be windy and cold. And very soon, like, three people are injured, sick. <laughs> Complaining, ah, it's cold. And I just, and, and my thing is that just don't be that guy. <laughs> just, just, uh, maybe the show's good, maybe the show's bad, but just have the discipline to understand what the comedy culture is like and put in the work, you know? That's, this is sounding very earnest, but, but, but I, I said I'm learning the, the routines of British comedians and how hard they work. So get me up to speed on comedy in India. I don't think we've had a, a gigging India. I mean, is there a circuit? There is, yeah. It's a pretty big circuit. You know, the, the circuit's large now, and it's not necessarily in English. There, there are a group of English comedians, but they're sort of city-specific and a little bit sort of by default elitist because of the language. Okay. So they have their own okay. audience. But you have to be very careful with the English language in India because if you come out sounding like this, and it's not my fault, you know, I just ended up with a Victorian education system. Okay. <laughs> but when you go out, like in Britain, I think it's okay to speak like this because everyone speaks like this. Mm -hmm. In India, when you speak like this, you're like, what a privileged, dirty, okay. great person this is. And now he's going to talk about like Indian things, like look down at it, you know. There is that, because you guys have a class system and we have a class system. I don't know who gave it to whom, <laughs> but we have it. And... Whereas, you know, you've got comedians like Zakir Khan, who's sort of like your Peter K. you know. He talks about average middle-class things and nostalgia. And, and he says, you know, when I walk into an environment that's English-speaking, filled with posh people, this is my experience. Don't you feel that way? And some 20,000 people go, yeah, we feel that way. Okay. And when I go to buy Levi's jeans, they discriminate against me because I look like a, a car cleaner or whatever. Don't you feel that way? So there's... So, and then there are comedians like me and our only approach is to sort of make fun of ourselves and how yes. we may have been stuck with this. You appear to be or you naturally are a higher status than the audience or that's the fear is that you'll come across a higher status than the, the audience? The latter, yeah, okay. the fear. And oftentimes, you know, if you come across something like this or have an American accent or whatever, there is that sense of like, is he going to talk down to us? So... The biggest thing to negate that when I started my comedy career is to say, you know, how, how to sort of drop yourself in, in, in the class bar and say that, yes, I may sound like this, but, you know. Yes, I've noted on one of your sets, you walk out and go, God, I tried to make an effort with what I'm wearing, but now I ended up looking like a, yeah. I, I remember, I forget the exact punchline, it's yeah. like, I look like a professor or something, I'm going to sell you insurance. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yes. Yeah. 
So there is the physical aspect and there's the language aspect. In India, I often say, you know, I sound like this. But now I can't speak to anyone because I turn around and everyone expects me to speak Hindi. And I sound like a love child of Stephen Fry and a Bangalore call center worker. And you say something like that and the people are like, oh, all right, he's okay. He gets it. Yeah. He gets it. He understands that he's not going to talk down to us. And then initially, a lot of time was spent just making fun of your class of people. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, aren't posh people like this, aren't posh people like that. And then slowly, dangerously, I crept towards more mainstream India, you know. Uh, I thought it was... And once they give you the license, it's like, it's okay to talk about politics and arranged marriage and, and uh, you know. I mean, there's a fantastic comedian called Varun Grover who's from a small town in India. And he talks about trains in India. Okay. And he talks about how... Uh, the Basically, how Indian people are thieves and how we distrust each other in that... Um, in Indian toilets, because... A lot of Indian trains have Western toilets and Indian toilets okay. because people are not used to Western toilets. Okay. Yeah? So in those, you have a, you don't have toilet paper, you have a mug of water to wash your bottle. Okay. And he says, we distrust each other so much, they usually tie that mug with a chain. <laughs> <laughs> so so they're like, this is how much trust there is amongst each other, that they don't even trust that guy to wash his bottle and leave it there. <laughs> Now, if I make that joke, it's a class thing. Yes, I understand. Because there's an English-speaking person. He's like, he would go to the Western toilet. He wouldn't even go to that toilet. Why mm-hmm. is he making fun of... Our is he toilet. making fun of our toilet? Yes, it yes. becomes an us and them thing. Sure. Whereas Varun, who's a homegrown comedian, has full right to do that. So, so navigating this has been very interesting. And of course, there are great female comedians like Aditi Mittal or Radhika Vaz who... I mean, there's no shortage of, um, you know, issues that women are facing in India, given the sexism, racism, mm-hmm. you know. So it's, it's all of that stuff that's going on in the West, but magnified much more. Mm-hmm. What consent means, all of that. So there's a whole set of comedians doing that. And then there's other people doing class and other people just doing politics. The point is very dangerous because, you know, in, you know, in your culture, you have sort of a freedom of speech. Like if you say something about, say, Boris Johnson... Uh, they're not going to like beat you up or arrest you or whatever. But in India, you have to be very careful. Kunal Kamra, who's a very good political comedian and dear friend, after a gig, I usually message him saying, are you all right? Right, okay. Because sometimes he's had to go and stay in other friends' houses and stuff. Uh, So there's that. But when you reach a lot of people, because YouTube has been a great mechanism in India to reach a lot of people. Some comedians have 2 million views, 10 million views. Mm -hmm. 10 million people, a lot of people. And not all of them with a sense of irony. Yes, yes, it makes you more discoverable, of course, yeah. the internet. And maybe if you don't want to be discovered, that's problematic. Are there any are there any comics in India staying off YouTube for that reason? Yeah, I was for a long time. I mean, but then Amazon happened. And then it's hard to hide, you know, like you guys have a culture of live shows. But the comedian doesn't put up his half an hour on YouTube. In India, the comedian became famous by putting up his, his half an hour on YouTube. And then, you know, he had a following and then that led to the live shows, which is Mm -hmm. still the trajectory. Everybody in India who's a comedian wants a million views. And that's what leads to public shows and corporate shows. Mm. Um, But once you do that and you say something against the government, authority, whatever, a million people have seen it. You haven't performed in a basement in Mumbai to 50 people. You're not a cult hero. You're now 
the Ministry of Information and Broadcasting is looking for you. <laughs> and and just just to give me some sort of sense of like what are the like what's the worst that could happen? You say they beat you up. Is it a case of imprisonment? Has that happened to anyone you know? Um, they have a thing where a police complaint is filed, and I know many comedians against whom police complaints have been filed. Uh, v Das, who's a big Indian comedian, yes. once did an impression of an Indian president during one of his live shows, and someone brought the police to the show. So at intermission, he was waiting to go on. He's he's blocked about this, and then police show up. And this is really funny. Sometimes some of these are funnier than you know the comedy shows themselves, because the police were like, you know, we've been called, and you were apparently mimicking the president. Before you go on, do the do the thing you did. <laughs> and he's like, I gotta go on, man. He's like, no, no, do the thing we so we know that it's not offensive or we may have to take you away. Oh god. So he was like, Oh yeah, yeah, this is what I did. And it's like, no, they said they're fine, go on. <laughs> oh my god. So okay. there's some of that happened. And and that was presumably fine as far as that police officer was concerned. Yeah. But presumably once that you know, like he had to decide, I imagine, in that moment whether to do an edited version like a safe version of the bit to show to the police. I never thought of that. And then yeah. go and do the real bit. Absolutely. Or he has to decide whether to risk doing the real bit and then risking the ire of that policeman. That's a very good point. Now that I think about it, maybe we just didn't even do a mimic. Like whatever he did on stage, sure. he just went there and did a very respectful sure. <laughs> imitation. Oh, I'm the president, aren't I giving and generous? <laughs> yeah. That's the bit. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> I love all Indian people. It's like, that's fine. That's not an arrestable okay. offense. Maybe, yeah, maybe we do so. But exactly. So comedians have to do things around the system. Okay. Um, but, you know, like, for example, it's almost comic when I mentioned to my British comedian friends that for saying something on Mock of the Week, Mock the Week or mm-hmm. any of those shows, imagine if you lived in a culture where you could be arrested. Yeah. You know, if like Ian Hislop said something on one of those shows and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, someone uh, filed a police complaint and whether he was arrested or not, he still have to show up in court yes. and defend what he said on Mark of the yes. Like, that to people here is ludicrous and funny. And, yes, and, yeah. it is. I suppose the nearest we get to that is sort of, it's less, it's not politically oriented. I think Frankie Boyle was taken to court. He was, or, or Frankie Boyle took the son to court for accusing him of being a racist and he... He took them to court and he kind of defended himself and won the case because they, he basically they quoted a joke of his out of context and said, you're a racist. And I believe I'm, I'm, I, uh, this is the, the blind leading the blind. I've no idea of the details. <laughs> but this is, uh, you know, but this is, that's, a, that's a very different case, I guess. Um, Meaning an audience member said you are racist and he said I'm not. And I'm no, I think the Sun, the, and I'm saying it might, might have been the Daily Mail or any other uh, scurrilous uh, tabloid newspaper, um, but uh, I believe they accused him of racism. Yeah. And so he took them to court to sort of officially say, look, I'm not going to let people call me racist because he's not racist. He's actually yeah. Frankie Boyle, who's someone who's known for his outrageous jokes, outrageous sense of humour, a very brutal sense of humour, but it, I think largely, politically speaking, his heart's in the right place. And that's what's... Uh, I mean, I think this is, this is an art form where you should have that licence, right? And what's interesting is that fight was about content, right? Like, you said something that is racist, not racist. We've got a law that says you can't hurt the sentiments of a particular community. And if you've got a billion people with varying sense of irony and knowledge, sure. everything it's, hurts your sentiments. You know? Yes, like, of course. My, I mean, I was talking to my neighbours and I said, uh, and when uh, 
some children were playing cricket outside in our building compound. And one of them hit a ball and it broke one of the car windows. And I said, children are just idiotic. And I just said that to my neighbor. And he said, I don't like jokes about children. There's a limit. <laughs> so like, yeah, imagine okay. if that guy, my neighbor, had gone to a show and someone was going on and on about children. That could be hurting a sentiment. So legally, you know, there's a lot of things. And all of this makes it just very distasteful and humorless. You know, it just... Uh, um, and and do you, am I right in thinking that the, the stand-up comedy scene in India is quite new? Very, very. Like, I'm, this sounds awful. I don't know if this is true. I, I understand the stand-up scene in, in India to have kind of been kick-started by the comedy store opening a comedy store in Mumbai. 100%. Don't is that right? <laughs> you can see from the point of view of a, a white Londoner saying, well, apparently we invented comedy. Well, it <laughs> doesn't sound great, does it? But that's just a fact. I mean, they just can't deny it, you know? It's like saying, well, how are you speaking English? Same way. <laughs> yeah, sure, Somebody okay. showed up. Um, so that's just a fact. Don Watts uh, said the comedy store, there were English comedians in India, but it wasn't formalized. There wasn't a club. And every star of, of that, gen, by generation, I mean just like eight years ago. Yes. Every person that's gone on to do whatever, you know, some people have shown up in the United Kingdom, some people have gone around the world, some people have almost gone to prison. All of this came out of the comedy club that he started. And all these people sort of blew up from there. And as I, as I understand it, as I have colloquially heard the story quite quickly the Indian comics said, we can do this ourselves. Like, we don't actually need there to be a British presence running this club. Is that right? Well, I think the comedians were all very fond of the comedy store. I think there was a business issue between the Indian owners and the British owners. But the comedians love what Don did and are, are personally very fond of the comedy right. store and very thankful for everything that... Because there was this never existed. Do 30 minutes, there'll be a host. You know, initially... Nobody knew what this meant. It was just a person going up and just saying stuff about the country, about themselves. They knew theatre, they knew film. But this wasn't... I remember people tried to emulate what Don did in restaurants and so on. And I remember very early, 2008-9, going up just about when the comedy store started because they thought you know, thousands of people were going to this and it was a big business success. So they saw that and said, what is this? It's just red lights, microphone, bunch of people. We'll do this. Right, so I remember there was a seafood restaurant that said, "We'll pay you, comedians, come down and do it." Except they had to announce to their diners that there was a comedy show. <laughs> Taking problems. <laughs> so Sorapan and I, like, there's a colleague of mine, very no, very famous, um, and we did this gig, and he's quite profane. He comes out and talks about, I don't know if it's appropriate to say, it that's here, fine, but that's yeah, fine. he says he talks about like I have very large balls or something. He says something about testicles and so. And there was a Gujarati family eating right in the front row. And, uh, and the father, I heard saw the father telling the daughter, why is he sharing that about his testicles? <laughs> <laughs> and they just didn't have any context. People were coming out and saying, you know, doing like... And that time the material also was like, a lot of it for all of us was like, it's either like a version of something we'd seen on TV. No one had found their voice. Yes, okay. So people were just like swearing a lot because they thought that was the thing to do. Yes. Or people were imitating a favourite comic because they thought it was the thing to do. The venues were all over the place. I remember once in 2011 being invited by a famous tyre company. I think it was a British, maybe Bridgestone or one of those. And the CEO loved stand-up. 
And this was in a town called Pune, which is a little outside Mumbai. And they were having their annual sales awards. So it was 2,000 tire salesmen. And he thought it would be great if the comedian didn't just run out on stage and do the set, but if he sat inside a tire. And there was a giant display tire on stage, which was mid-air. And he thought it would be great if the comedian sat inside that tire when the show started. Mind you, no one was told there's a comedian. So what 2,000 tire salesmen saw was a middle-aged Indian man in a suit sitting in a tire some 40 feet above the stage. And then from backstage, they said, ladies and gentlemen, you're comedian for the night. And they started bringing me down, right? This is India, the hydraulics malfunction. So now I'm dangling some 20 feet above. They can't do the gig. So they decide, cut the comedy. Let's move on to the rest of the program. I'm up there for an hour while the CEO gives his sales report. There are two Uzbek ladies that do some fire dancing. Uh -huh. I'm up there the entire time. And this is, I mean, I've had... Did you have your phone with you? Could you take pictures and broadcast? And <laughs> I mean, just imagine the embarrassment. Just, you know, I just like, I figured any slight movement, and I don't, I've never been inside a tire before. I mean, it was already, you know, such a respectable thing to do, to quit your day job as to be a journalist and be in a tire in okay. the middle of a field in Pune, 30 feet above everyone. That, like any sort of wit beyond that was in like I was just thinking you know like this is perhaps the most embarrassing moment of my entire life you know just I, but colleagues have have gigged in in uh, you know like people were, this is like the wild west right people were thinking this is a thing so we'll do it I've had colleagues gigging who were told that there's a gig and they go to a five star hotel and the five star hotel thought it'd be great to do the gig by the poolside so they set up like a platform in the swimming pool with diners, you know, on shore, if you will. But the thing about a platform is it's a floating platform. So the comedian floats away mid-story. So imagine my colleague, like Rajneesh, he was doing this uh, gig and he was telling me about it. He starts telling some story about, he's like, I have a crush on my mother-in-law. Like he said, <laughs> and then he floats just away. Disappears. <laughs> and the crowd are just like, well, he'll be back to tell us the rest. You know, this was just this, all this is maverick. An, yeah. This is like an incredible microcosm of, like, I mean, it's so fascinating to hear the story of a, a country as large as India mm. suddenly discovering this yeah. art form and like everyone making all their mistakes in one go. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like just learning and pushing in different directions. I mean, if you so got... you, were you were you there at kind of year zero for that? So what was your very first experience of it? You went along to one of the shows or you, when, when did it occur to you personally to go, maybe this is a thing I could do? So uh, Don Ward at the comedy store was having auditions and I was sent, I was already writing films. I was sent by a magazine to check it out. And Don said, I won't give you an interview unless you do 10 minutes. <laughs> you feel, someone told me you do comedy writing. I said, yeah, well, yeah. And he said, no, no, everyone that comes here has to audition. And then I auditioned and then I didn't think it was going to be anything. Like I honestly, till today I've been a, I remain a pessimist about the Indian comedy scene. I think it's all over tomorrow. Okay, okay. You'll, and, you'll find and that, that's very, that, that, that sentiment is echoed in all major cities of the world. Oh, really? <laughs> about, about those cities. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think yeah, everyone, yeah, really. everyone in Britain is like, it's contracting. Is this going to last? Is too many of us now? Oh, it's going to explode. It's going to implode, you know. 
Really? That yeah, discussion yeah, is similar? 100%, yeah. Even though you've had a culture for 40 years? Or oh, yeah, absolutely. But the, 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 I think one of the prevailing narratives is uh, there's so much comedy online now. People don't need to leave the house. No one's got any money anymore. People don't want that live experience. And we've experienced over the last 10 years... Um, almost, almost as soon as I myself became professional, people start. I was just thinking, yes, I'm doing it, my dream job. And then, what, what are we all? What do you, what do you mean it's all going to go pop? You know, like, like in. I think we have we have the scene in in New York to look at and go in in, in LA where we go. Well, there's loads of comedians, but you can't make money from being a comedian. Correct. And you know, you can't you can't go there and earn any money. You have, have to no be able to headline and and be famous and make a huge amount of money. But actually, what we've we've had it so good here for so long that then uh, after the economic crisis, then uh, people stopped going out. There was suddenly lots of comedy on on TV and um, and clubs that would previously have done a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night went down to Friday, Saturday, and now just Saturday in some cases. So it's been being it's been contracting at the same time as loads of new comedians have started. None of those things is necessarily bad at all. As yeah. you know. Um, but uh, certainly it enables... You know, I think anyone can look at their exciting thing and think and share that sentiment of like, oh, God, it's all over tomorrow. It's finished, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. yeah we used to, I used to wake up and tell whoever was booking me, I was like, oh, right, I might as well do a good show because this is over, he's bankrupt, he's going to go back to his day job. Sure. But the thing, you know, has exploded and keeps growing and, and growing in different languages with Amazon coming and doing their thing and... Um, but at the same time, you know, it's very interesting to hear that because the model they're trying to copy is finally 10 years down, they're trying to put some systems in place. Mm-hmm. So clubs are being formed. So I guess where Britain was in the 60s, first, like, you know, you go there, you do half an hour, you stick to your time, you get paid 5,000 rupees. Like, it was earlier, it I was mean, just all over the place. Sure. Right? You got paid in cash, you didn't get paid, um, or you got paid too much. Like... There was yes. just, oh, people, someone mentioned that there was a, a couple that was celebrating the anniversary. They'd seen a comedy show and they wanted to purchase a show, but it was just them, a couple in a hotel room. They wanted to, and then I, they wanted to buy a half an hour set of a comedian <laughs> to be performed once they finished their dinner in their hotel room on their 20th anniversary. And I was like, is that slavery? Like, is, yeah. that, <laughs> is that comedy or slavery? Like you're buying a person who will show up and do what exactly. Yes. And so that's where things work. Well, the other thing it makes me think is that there is there is certainly room for some unscrupulous uh, Indian promoters to come over to the UK, watch the worst of our promoters' ideas over here and then take them back and, you know, wait, you know, there, there must be lots of opportunities to really exploit acts. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, look, where I come from, deceit and theft are very respectable things. <laughs> you know, so I think that, that what you've described is basically the modus operandi of every Indian promoter. It is not the aberration. It is basically, that is the business model. Like, let's come here. Although, although yeah, having said that, the young promoters are changing. You know, they are coming here. They're going to Edinburgh. They're going to, um, I don't know if you know Shomendra. He's a big Indian promoter out of Bangalore. He runs a club. They're, they're making an effort to learn. Because okay. the first generation of promoters were just that, were just, you know, oh, I can do this, you know, oh, what's the aspect that I need to ignore? Pay the artist, let's take that out. <laughs> Lights I've got, I won't, you know, I'll overcharge for the bar, whatever. Like, sure. basically, they break it down to the best way to make money. And that's 
I was fortunate enough to have my grooming in that generation of comedians, mm-hmm. of comedy promoters. Luckily, this generation has Amazon and other things. But yeah, I got the best of the deceit. Yeah. So this is Anuvab. What a lovely bloke. Really charming and genuinely has something to say with his comedy. I hope you'll check him out at this year's Edinburgh Festival. So remember, you can find him and all your other ComCom heroes that you want to see up there at edfringe.com. So do check out his show. He's an absolutely charming presence, a very funny guy, and has got some really interesting subject matter worth hearing. So do find out more from Anivab. And if you are particularly of a mood to hear more from him, we talk about some very interesting topics on the extra content. Now, as you'll remember, if you've been up to date with the podcast over the last few weeks, I've been talking about the Insiders podcast. That's a special thing for hardcore fans of the show. It's a whole other private podcast available just for insiders. How can I become an insider, you wonder? Well, it's very easy to set up. In fact, if you struggle with setting up, I will personally get in touch with you over email and help you sort it out. And it's also easy to cancel, so don't be put off giving it a try. Get on to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders for all you need to know. We've got loads of different projects on that, not to mention extra content from all of the old episodes, all in one convenient place. And all of the extra content going forwards is only going to appear exclusively on that private podcast. You can also do a thing called You Interview Stew, where you pitch to interview me about the subject of your choice. We've had two or three of those already. They've been great fun. And you can also participate in Comedy Critique, where new comedians send their material in a YouTube or an audio clip of their stuff, and then we, as a ComComPod insider community, all feast on it and offer them feedback and have a group conversation about that. So there's loads and loads of stuff to be enjoyed. It's really a great way to get closer to some of the themes of the podcast and a little bit closer to the kindred spirits within the ComComPod community. Comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And on that page as well, if you don't fancy uh, joining up or if you've got too much too many podcasts in your life already, you can just do a one-off donation as normal in support of the show. Also, you can share it, tell your friends about it and walk up to strangers in the street and borrow it on the back of their upper arm. My tour is going great. That's been pretty fantastic. I've been really blown away. I, I haven't had much of a base in the north previously. And this weekend I've been in... Uh, I was in, God, it's all merging. It's not merging into one, but it's one big, long thing. Um, Where have we been? Where have we been? Sheffield was great fun. Thanks to the listeners that came along there. Um, I did last night, as as of this recording, I did York, which was just superb. What a lovely club there, the Burning Duck Comedy Club in York, uh, which was full, very gratifyingly. And I find out today that perhaps because of that, uh, and people very kindly telling their friends, I have doubled the audience that I thought I was going to sell to in Newcastle at the stand. Tomorrow I'm in Leeds, but that will have passed by the time you hear this. It's been so much fun, and there are a few dates still left on the tour. Uh, Soho Theatre at the end of June, and before then Southampton, Cambridge, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Birmingham, Brighton, Tring and Cardiff, not forgetting those London Soho Theatre dates. And I tell you what, if you're in Bristol or near Bristol or anywhere in the southwest on the 14th of June, you can come along and see a live DVD recording of the show, like I mean it, at the Old Assembly Theatre. All details, as ever, from comedianscomedian.com slash tour. Let's get back to the brilliant Anivab Pat. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So, so just to take us back to that first, to, to your personal voyage into it, you were a journalist in what kind of field? I was a business journalist for Reuters, the news organization. Oh, my God. Okay. So it helps, you know, in a, just understand, like the whole empire set, the fact that, you know, we're given this sort of Victorian value system, but we live in India. That's now very American and social media focused. That's a big learning, right? I mean, I, being a journalist gave me that perspective. Um, because I wanted to write jokes that were bigger than like, oh, my mother-in-law hates me, you know, like, and to get that perspective, I think 10, 15 years of journalism helped, you know, where does India stand vis-a-vis America? And, yes. you know, uh, just every time I came here for journalist work, I was very, like, I was quite taken by British politesse, you know, like, we don't have any tact, like, there isn't any Indian politesse. So, like, if someone, like, if you met an older Indian person, and they, they would be like, Stuart, you're looking very ugly today. Like, they would just say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, sure. Just okay. in, and here you had a culture where people would be like, I have a slight problem with your presentation. And they mean the presentation is the worst they've ever seen. That you should die. You know, that's what they mean. So it only came from journalism. The, the fact that I traveled and I could compare cultures, see what's important where. Okay. Um, and a lot of that creeps into the set. Yes, you're a very uh, uh, literate and very articulate. You know what I mean? You're, you're one of those comics who can kind of place just the show you're doing at the moment, which I've yeah. seen some clips of, but I'm afraid I haven't, I haven't seen the whole show. As you say, it's about empire, yeah. and you're able to place it in a sort of broader historical and geographical context. Yeah, you know, and, and the jokes, you know, one of course looks for jokes, but, but just having that context, you know, just coming to Britain and saying, look, I have this voice because you guys gave it to me, but now I'm out of place in my country. What do you think? It's really to start that conversation. Yes. And then the mechanics of like where the jokes are, etc. I sometimes find I enjoy having the conversation more than the pressure of the comedy. Uh, because like now I've done it 10 times. And the moment I start thinking about mechanics, the laughs here, the, A, I stop enjoying it. And B, I think, oh God, I'm going to repeat myself. I'm going to screw it up. You know, the moment it gets in the mechanics. But the moment I step back and I think, hold on, think back to your journalist days. What you're having is just a broad conversation about your culture with a bunch of people who are heavily inebriated <laughs> and are interested. And, and yes. you're trying to find a common bond of like, so that they can be like, yes, that's my family as well. You know, like, that's the effort. You know, it's, it, that's the whole joy of traveling to other cultures for me, you know. So, so what you're describing there seems like, um, the, is that a thing that you've learned throughout your comedy process? Did you start from a place of uh, wanting to wanting to be a comic like the comics you'd seen. And it sounds like what you've discovered is your uh, strongest suit or maybe your most pleasurable place on stage is to have some information to impart that isn't simply opinion-based. That's absolutely right. It was a mix of both. And specific things, like, for example, I saw Eddie's art, and I loved the idea that two people can have a conversation. And just the idea that... And before that, I'd seen stand-up shows, you know, where people would talk and say funny things. But here I saw stand-up where a man would just make a whole scene appear on stage. Yes. There'd be a pelican in a corner, 
a governor general, we'd be in Uganda in 1550 and five people would be talking and he'd be all of them. Yes. And I, because I came from a script writing and, and journalism background, I was like, that's incredible. That's incredible that that was even possible in stand-up. And so that was the mechanic that really interested me. And then the stories were like, surely there's got to be stories in my culture where I can deploy that mechanic. You know, so that's how those two got together, where I can take a, a British man in 1650 who comes to Calcutta, who's just confused out of his mind, sweating, like, what is he doing here? And then who are the people in the scene, you know? Um, and my difficulty has been, once you lay out the mechanics, it's great fun the first time, but because I come from a writing background, I think, okay, how do I keep it consistent night after night? Like, yes, how do okay. I, without, if I invent new things every night, it may not be funny, mm -hmm. right? So there are some things that are working that I need to repeat. But how do I not think, oh God, I'm repeating, it's sounding artificial. Yes. How do I keep it like I've just discovered this on stage? Yes. Uh, yes, and how are you solving that problem? <laughs> With your help, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a steward. You guys are masters of comedy. I'm learning every day. I don't know. Um, well, it's interesting talking to, you know, Ross Noble. Um, I know long hair. I know yes, who he is. I've yes. seen him on some shows. Yeah. yeah, so his comedy is like at the very extreme edge of improvisation. And he, he's been on this uh, podcast and he was talking about one of the things that really sticks in my memory is that he was talking about how as soon as he has a bit that really works he makes sure he takes it apart again, specifically to, to cope with that. Now, he's a, you know, that his stock in trade is 100% improvisation. And he released, um, was it the Space Cowboy Tour? He released a tour DVD which had eight different versions of the same show, just eight different DVDs. Like, this, this is all the same show, just have all of it, because he's just constantly, they're all different. So are you saying he found five minutes that people were losing their minds over? Yes, And he said, he committed Harakiri. He said, I'm yes. not going to do this. Yeah, he, and he does that constantly with every aspect of his show. So as soon as he has a bit, if, he is, if he's kind of often getting into the track, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting him here, but if he has a bit about walnuts, then maybe one night the walnut thing will really click. So he'll make sure that he doesn't repeat that again. He'll make sure that he does something different with the walnut idea. So it's constantly churning over. And, I mean, I'm I not, think you I'm not have, suggesting you do that. <laughs> no, I think you may have saved my tour. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think well, this is the good, there are no rules. Yeah. That's the most exciting thing about comedy. And it's very exciting for me as a, as a lifelong comedy fan to see uh, you as kind of archetypical of a culture who are embracing it and learning in the moment and being keen to go, how, how can we fix this? Yeah. Because what an incredible amount of kind of creative energy to go... Yeah, this is a problem I'm having. What do I do about yeah. it? And I think, um, yeah, there are no rules. That's the, that's the most, I, I think all of us in this country, in, in America, all of us to some extent are guilty of doing an impression of what we think a comedian, yeah. in air quotes, is supposed to do. Yeah. And you have to constantly remind yourself, no, whatever I do is the right thing. Yeah. Whatever I do is my process, however I approach it. And that's what I've noticed, that they would reward authenticity over a punchline. Mm -hmm. Like people will reward authenticity. Someone came in and said, you know, I found you really likable but uh, on the first night, mm -hmm. but you were itching to do talk about the empire more. But it seemed like you lent, lent on jokes that had worked before. Yes. And I said, that's absolutely true. How could you tell that from the show? They said, you could see it in your eyes. This was another comic that said this. An older gentleman who's okay. a comedy, who's a, I mean, everyone at the performance space at Soho, knew mm -hmm. him. He was a very established Andrew something, I forget his name. Okay. But he had a lovely chat after at the bar and he said, I could tell in your eyes that you were itching to do some stuff, but maybe you'd never done it before, so you were worried how we'd react. 
And I was like, that's absolutely true. So, you know, when you're inauthentic, they can just like immediately realize. Yes. And also the hard, hard, hard part for me is you guys grow up in a culture of creativity, right? From a very young age, people, your parents encourage you, you know, think, what do you think of this painting? What do you think of, what do you think? You know, Mm -hmm. what do you Mm -hmm. as a child think about these things? I grew up in a culture of like, just study this, just memorize yes, it. Yes, mug it. Mug it up. Yeah, mug yeah, it, mug it up. Say. That's it. Well, I, it I, I heard this in, I've seen the Amazon Prime, uh, uh, your, your DVD. Yeah. Yes, you exactly. Memorize stuff. And, and so... That's a very funny bit, you drawing the parallel between that and then your American, more American free thought. Free thought. And yeah. this culture is the same. You take your kids to museums, you're like, what do you think of Mona Lisa? What do you think of this? What do you think of... Now, if I had that, I'd have the confidence to destroy a set. What happens... Is that Ross Noble grew up in that world. What happens to people like us is you think, oh, I've got a good hour. You just cling on to that hour. I'm going to make a living out of it. And I have to, like, basically undo my entire Indian education. (laughs) Yeah, yes. Not the knowledge. The knowledge bit is great, you know, but undo the mechanics of it. To find some creativity. Yes, well, I think what what you might do is to... What we all have to do, I think, to some extent, is to remember the insanity of your first choice to set foot on stage mm. and try to recreate that boldness every yeah. night. Because yeah. the difference between you, the journalist, and you, the person who went, right, I'm doing it. I'm going on stage and trying to talk. We're trying to make people laugh for 10 minutes. That leap was an enormous leap. And yeah. then as soon as you've made that enormous leap, however many years, five, eight, ten years later, very easy to retract back into just a slightly and I'm not talking about you here all of us but you to, to retract on. into yeah. a slightly a slightly risky version of ourselves but mostly safe very you know safe I mean? very safe yeah 2010 Stuart I was fearless I was fearless because I thought this is going nowhere I thought this is a lovely British gentleman who's asked me to stand on a stage in the middle of Mumbai in a nightclub he started and talk for five minutes what's the worst that'll happen right I have a day job I'm married but you know 2015 when you're sitting in a tire and it's your only living. Yes, and you gave up a very good career. <laughs> you know, it was going all right. You're such a list and, you know, there's a laid out track, whatever. Um, although today, I don't know, journalism is probably as extinct as comedy. Sure, so. maybe you got out at just the right time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard to tell. But the point is, there was a fearlessness. It, was, it felt like a pastime. The moment is not a pastime. You think, oh, I must cling on to these jokes because people laugh. Laugh means tickets. Tickets mean this. But I learn from a lot of young Indian comedians now who are fearless, who've been, who've had... Kunal Kamra is a kid that comes to mind. I call him a kid. He's 30. But he's goes out every night like it's his first night. You know, um, and they are young. So, you know, there's, they're also smoking some substance that's illegal or the other. And, and uh, you know, they're not like, tensing up and drinking water and thinking, I don't want to mess this up yes. at Soho. And and there's a certain kind of... Disrespect is not the right word, but but let's... Like for me, because I grew up in such an anglicized country where Britain was such held in such high esteem, performing in London is a big thing. You know, it's I'm performing in London. You know, British people are laughing at this. This new generation don't have any of that. Yes. Like, they're like, I'm going to explore just like, you know, it's it's a... Dark stage and red lights, and I'm in London. I'm in uh, Goa. It doesn't matter. There's a thing we've spoken before on the podcast about this. There's a thing that uh, American comics seem to delight in doing, which is to walk on. They'll have a stool and they'll walk on and put some notes and their phone down on the stool. Like the fact that their phone is on stage, like projects this air of casualness mm. to the like. This is just a gig, guys. Mm. 
Do you know what I mean? This, I'm just my phone's here, mm. and throughout the show they'll wander over and just look at their set list on their on their phone and go, "Okay, yeah." Do you know what I mean? It's almost like this big. Uh, and how do British audiences react to that? Does it well, seem I, like Odie oh, didn't prepare enough? Mm, I don't know. I think if the gig is going well, it doesn't matter. I mean, that's right. the thing with comedy, isn't it? If yeah. they're laughing, it doesn't yeah. matter what you did. Yeah. I remember one of the best bits of advice I've given Alan Cochran, a good friend of mine, when I started comedy. I remember asking him about what shoes I should wear, or, or saying I've. I've got this, I've got a particular gig. I just, I don't even know what shoes to wear. And Alan said, if they're looking at your shoes, you're not funny. Mm. You know, because it, like it's you get a pass for everything. I think this every time I get a haircut. Yeah. Hey, why don't I just get a Mohican? Why don't I shave my head? It doesn't matter. I'm a comedian. I can do whatever I want. Fair, yeah. But what I want to do is sort of just, just be the same, you know, being like, play it safe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just crazy. That's, that's like a, a, an instinct that I think we all have to a great Because you built that hour, right? Like, um, and I think great artists don't think like that. Like, what is an hour it's you know the older I'm getting I'm realizing most of my friends are funny for hours and hours yes. and they don't consider that an hour they're it's just husbands and my father's hilarious and inappropriate and racist and sexist and all those things but he's not building an hour he's just being himself yes I remember once I had a corporate gig for Facebook and Facebook has a very big back office in a town called Hyderabad in India and because it's Facebook and they have lots of money they did not it was the monsoon so it rains a lot in India they didn't want to wait for a commercial flight so they flew us in their private plane so I thought that was a big thing they're flying you in a private plane I told my dad and he said yeah I said that Facebook flew me in a private plane and he had one comment those things are dangerous <laughs> didn't ask me how the gig went I said dad imagine I've arrived those things are very dangerous never do it again <laughs> yeah. okay. so, so do you think you need to and I'm, I'm struggling for the word when you said it's not disrespect that's right it's not disrespect it's like a healthy I don't know what the word is I can't remember it's on the tip of my tongue like a word for a, a healthy a positive disrespect yeah, yeah. you know you're, you're uninhibited uninhibited that's the word yes. fearless yeah. fearlessness on yeah. stage so maybe do you think that, that for you personally part of the, the next phase of the journey is to cultivate that lack of inhibition to, to, to kind of take the process out of it and the feeling that you are one is supposed to do well and one is supposed to give one's best where actually I'm not suggesting you wear a leather jacket and start smoking on stage although I whenever I see a comic doing that I always think that's someone who's trying very hard to to overcome the same challenge that mm, we're talking mm. about you know he's, he's yeah I mean, we all use different ways. He's using a shtick. He's using yeah, some yeah, sort yeah. of a thing. And like, look how little I care is yeah. also a way of caring, isn't it? <laughs> he's terrified. Yeah. yeah. If you well. sat with him, he's petrified, that person. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. I think the answer to that is yes. I don't know how to break the inhibition. I, you know, but I've had a lot of practice. The comedy store started bringing some of us over in 2010 and 11 to give us five, seven-minute sets. And this, I'm just sharing with you now that I'm doing an hour in London. The first two years I came over, nobody knew. I came quietly, basement in Leicester Square, British mm-hmm. audience, because we'd never played in front of mainstream British audiences before. Disaster. Okay. Disaster because of how hyped I was, how much pressure I gave myself, rather than thinking this is just be an audience in a cosmopolitan city, it could be Mumbai, they're English speaking, don't worry about it. No. I just pressurized myself into... I'm performing in London. London. <laughs> British people so well dressed. Look at them; they look like straight out of Downton Abbey. You know, like ugh. disaster, disaster. Tried to write new material, disaster. Over the years, after a few failures, I calmed down a little bit. Started going back to the old material. 
even though they were very India specific. And people were laughing. They're knowledgeable. They know. Um, and so again, I'm on a similar journey because this is a whole hour. I'm on a similar trajectory to build that rapport for an hour with an audience. But, but uh, this is a lesson also. 50 shows at a stretch, 30 shows at a stretch. The discipline, you know, mm. that sometimes I'll be uninhibited and, and be like, ah, it's fine, I'm in London. Then day four, I think it's the colonial upbringing. Day four, I'll be like, you're in London. <laughs> you know, like... Some internal programming to respect yeah, <laughs> yeah. the uh, situation. Oh, you messed up that night, whatever. And I could be, I think audiences in this town are really, really sharp. Audiences in Bombay are very sharp as well, but they'll give you a pass. If they know you, they'll give you a bit of a pass. So, like, if you incorrectly deliver a bit of a joke, they'll still give you a big laugh if your last joke was okay. Mm-hmm. And the next one is fine. These guys, your audiences judge you on what you're telling them. So I had a, a practice gig in Covent Garden at a comedy club. Saturday night, there were stag do's, everybody. Mm-hmm. And I was like, gosh, I'm going to go out there and talk about Indian history and empire. No problem. Laughing. Stag do, drunken people, laughing. I had a story in the middle about an Indian uncle who's a bit racist and the rubbish he says. And I delivered it badly because I went home and I realized I forgot to give them the context of the whole setup. Sure. So middle of the gig, 15 minutes going great, five minutes. So you can't like, and and then I went off and some people were like, oh, it's the crowd, you know, they're drunk. It's not them. It was me. It wasn't them. It's because there were far more complicated jokes about British history that they were laughing at. So I've always been of the belief that it's never the audience. Like if we sat back and looked at the set, either in one's nervousness or in one's hurry, you haven't said something or you forgot something. Or Like I love your home renovation shows. <laughs> like I'm, I'm just beginning to see how you guys are obsessed with buying houses. We're obsessed with buying houses, but you guys are taking it to the next level. Okay. And there's something I'm searching for there that's, that's funny, like some sort of a scene that I was trying to write for the last couple of days. And I haven't found it, you know, but the, so I'll get that response. Like I'll start saying, I love your home renovation shows. Yes. They laugh at that and they're like, okay, now make an observation. They they want you to, yeah, what is it about them? Come on, we're with you. We're We're with with you. you. What is it? Yeah. Yeah. Take Now, in India, I could have said home renovation shows and said a a thing that was a little unprepared and a little rubbish. And because they laughed at the first bit, I'd be carried through. Yes. Okay. Here they're like. You've given us the thing, see it through. Okay. We're listening to every word. Yes. We've paid money. <laughs> We're listening to every word. So it's proper hard work. And do you think that will make you a better comic? Do you think that's a sort of that's a good creative environment? Are there are there any downsides to that sort of audience experience? You know, I mean, look, I come from a my father was in ships and I come from a sort of working class Indian family because he, he used to work physically on ships. I had, uh, I grew up being told there's nothing wrong in hard work. So, you know, yes, it'll make you a better comic, but it'll also make you alert on stage every second. And that can't be a bad thing. So you'll mm-hmm. be by default working harder because you're like, they're listening for everything. I can't phone this joke in, you know, like, so every night you have to be on your toes. And, and at the same time, we were discussing as well, the, that thing about authenticity, that then you've got to make the decision whether, what is your biggest motivator on stage is it a laugh at any cost or is it 
an authentic laugh. And, and if there's no laugh, well, at least you were authentic. Like, that's a decision we've all got to make as well. Correct. Big point. When I was bombing a lot in those early years in London, two or three times I came down. And, you know, comedy store were really encouraging. They were like, because I was probably the first one who started with them. The rest were all British comics. They were flying down, you know. All these guys were big in the club circuit. Ben Norris, Ian Stone, Alistair Barry, all these guys came down. Um, Rob Deering, he was a yeah. big success. He yeah. sung a song about biryani, which became a big hit. Um, <laughs> Saltzman, of course. And then while all this was happening, um, they were very supportive. But Don Ward told me, be, be comfortable with silences. Because I realized three things when I started gigging here, which was, I have an accent. Mm-hmm. It may not be a pronounced one, but I have to address it, right? Mm-hmm. Because it sounds like I'm from here, but I'm not. Don't rush through the joke because you're nervous. Don't shout because people are listening. Those are the three things we do a lot in India when nobody's laughing. We get nervous, we start shouting. So just learning, the, one of the main things he said was be comfortable with silences. Be okay with silences. People are listening. Um, that's taken me a long time to It's realize. such jiu-jitsu, isn't it? I, I, always equate, I always think of that when I think of gigging at the comedy store. Something changed for my gigs there when I noticed how long it was before the people who were really good, the best acts there, how long it was before they spoke. They'd walk on stage and you could just time, sit at the comedy store and time how long it is before an act speaks a word into the microphone wow. and I think the, because you every, everyone wants to bring their A game to that club it's known as having the highest quality control of you know any club in, in the country and it's a fantastic room to play as you know and but this the it's not even the speed it's just the when people walk on slowly and look at everyone and say good evening people go oh here we are is this guy yeah, that took me so long. And as soon as I noticed it, it makes me laugh now because I'm yeah. like, oh, it's uh, Sean Collins. It's yeah. going to be 15 seconds before he opens his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fabulous, right? Yeah. It's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. And then you know that it's a journey. It's a journey. You're there with the guy for the evening. That comfort, I'm still learning. It's, I'm still learning. I'll probably not get to it till the end of my comedy career, which, you know, it's probably it's tonight. Probably tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> So, so talk to me then about your um, your comedy as distinct from the next five acts on the bill that we might see in Mumbai. What do you, what oh, what, what marks you out from uh, from your peers? You know, I'm obs- one of the main things that every other. Well, I'll 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 tell you. I had my birthday recently, um, and one of the comedians sent me a birthday message. Atul Khatri, he's a big comedian, but he talks a lot about family and being a forty year old man and kids and taking his children to Justin Bieber concerts. And he's Sindhi, which is uh, he's an Indian community that are known for not spending money very much. Okay. So he talks about how he saves money when he travels abroad as a Sindhi. And he's ca- multiplying everything in rupees. And stuff. Okay, That's yes. the kind of comedian he is, right? And he sent me a birthday message saying, and he sends a com- birthday message to every comedian. And he says, happy birthday, so-and-so. What can you give this person who already has Dash? And the Dash is usually... Their obsession. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. that's lovely. <laughs> so, and I think with Veer, he said, what can you give a person who's already like a comedy legend who's obsessed with sex? Or like, yeah, sure. Like, with me, he said, what can you give this person who's 42 balding and has the British Empire? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the British influence on us has been a huge, at least also the part of India I come from, 
was the capital of British India for 250 years. Every second statue, Calcutta, Calcutta. Front, yeah. every statue around me is like King George or Queen Victoria in the middle of a random Indian city. So, and the language, and because I went to a British school, and because, you know, it was a mix of like being taught to speak properly, but then half the country doesn't understand what you're saying. Then becoming a retail entertainer in that country where English is on the decline... You know, a so, retail entertainer. You know, I see myself as like, I, I don't know, I, maybe I'm being hard on myself, but I see comedy as like retail entertainment. Is, know, that, like, is, is, that a, is that a phrase that anyone else uses or is that a, 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 a euism? Is that a palism? I use it, yeah. It's yeah, a yeah. very funny, I mean, that's a very funny name for a show. <laughs> <laughs> retail, retail entertainment. entertainment. <laughs> well, you know, go back to my father, because the comedy store was inside a mall in Mumbai called Palladium. It yes. still is, okay. right? That's where it was and is. And... Uh, and a friend of his saw a show and went to my dad and said, you know, your son, he's become, he's become quite a comedian now. And my dad's like, yeah, yeah, he works in a mall now. <laughs> and he saw it as retail entertainment because the next shop is Zara, you know. Yes, like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah. My son could be working at Zara, helping people with clothes, but he's in this mall. But, there, there, but there's also, that's a very you phrase as well, because it also seems to, to have a note of um, humility and kind of resignation that the glamour is not so glamorous. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah. they feel like quite true notes for you. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel very comfortable, you know, in this culture with that value system mm-hmm. because America is a very sort of, let's celebrate. This is your moment. This is a big moment. There's a lot of pressure on celebrating yourself and India is also like that. Like, mm-hmm. you've achieved something and there are lists, you know, you are a top five comedian you know, there's constantly like people above people. Here, there's a celebration of failure. Yes, yeah. You know, absolutely. I love that. That I'm learning that there's a certain kind of. It's okay to say if someone says it was great. It's okay to say, oh shit. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to make friends with a British person, tell yeah. them a story in which you fuck up. Yeah. That's that hundred percent. I wish someone had told me that at school. <laughs> <laughs> that is like you could be everyone's friend. <laughs> that is, I've always loved that value system. I just never found a culture that that appreciates that, you know, like I'll finish a gig and it'll be great. And someone will be like, that was very, very good. And I'm like, oh. and they're like, why are you being like this? Like they would get offended. Yes. That I was not. Whereas I mean nothing by it. I just like misery. <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy, you know, misery is a strong word, but I enjoy failure. I think that failure is romantic and, and applaud, should be applauded. You know? Yes. And so yeah, a lot of my comedy is about that. And, and from that perspective, I feel at home here, you know, but every other thing is, like I said, the jokes have to be good. Like, mm-hmm. like every other way, this culture is just like any other culture. Um, it's just like, because it's so self-effacing. Um, so that's a comedy style that I do a lot, you know, which is Alive at 40 is really about like an essay of failures as a 40 year old man. Yes. You know, and most of them true. Like, I don't even mean them as jokes. Like, just... You're one about them, uh, your mum tweeting as if she knows the people. Yeah. Like someone, like a star yeah, tweeting, gone. I'm going to yeah. be a so-and-so, so... and your mum tweeting back, I can't make it. Yeah. I mean, God, I really laughed at that. Yeah. True story. <laughs> she said that. Yeah. I mean, I just, a lot of this is just from life in India. They put in the show, you know. Um, but you've got a range of young comedians and there's, like, I think India has a version of, if you name X, Y, Z, like if Zakir yes. Khan is our Peter K, you know, somebody is our um, uh, Doug Stanhope. Sure. You know, okay. somebody is our Louis C.K. You know, like, it's like that. Um, okay. They, 
because of my style and my age, I think there's a lot of like talk, like the press keeps saying, because I'm obsessed with empire and history. There's a lot of these like Dylan Morani, Zardi sort of comparisons that keep happening inaccurately because they're legends and I'm just a random <laughs> working in the mall. Yeah. But, but the press kindly do these things. But, but there's a version of someone, like there are young comics who are angry. You know, they haven't yet discovered a voice, but they're fabulous in their anger about politics or movies or but you know that they're channeling some angry comedian they've seen in the West. Yes. Um among the young I love Karunesh Talwar, he's a great kid. Um Sapan Varma, a great kid. And these guys, Sapan much more pleasant, but but you know these guys have studied a lot of American comics. They've seen Dimitri Martin or Omar Jalili or you know like they've mm-hmm. done everyone in India is doing their homework. But slowly, original voices are emerging. I think Zakir Khan, who's our Peter K, is perhaps the most original voice. Because he doesn't care what the laugh is. He'll tell you a half an hour story about how uncomfortable it is in, to live in a joint family in India where brothers and cousins, everybody lives together. And like a sex scene comes on mm-hmm. on television. Mm-hmm. And you have one shared television that everybody watches. And the mum gets uncomfortable, says, I'm going to go make snacks. And like, he'll play out the entire discomfort. And he'll like have the father say a line. He'll have the brother walk out of the room and he'll have him come back and he'll just like milk it for the... And you know, the entire middle class, 10,000 people are just feeling that discomfort with him. Yes. And that comfort of storytelling, that's just emerging now in India. You know, that I'm seeing that. Um, and of course, um, great female voices. You know, those are my talking about issues that women... And, you know, in any culture, like in India say, Aditi Mittal and I will go in for the same gig or we'll both go into a party and her experience of that event will be completely different from a middle-aged man's experience of the event. Um, there used to be a comedy venue in Pune uh, called High Spirits, which all of us have played. And last year, there were some complaints that, you know, it was a very sexist place and, and there was some harassment, etc. And then all these women comedians and other comedians started telling stories. And I read those and I was like, gosh, I was there that night, mm-hmm. exactly that time. <laughs> My experience as a middle-aged man, completely different. Mm-hmm. I was like, they told me, would you like a snack? And you went on. And this other person was like, this happened to me, this happened to me, this is how the promoter spoke to me. And you realize there are parallel Indians. And Obviously, these women comics are now discovering some of the stuff they can talk about and some of the horrendous things men say to them. Um, and Radhika and Aditi, both of whom, or oh, Aditi has come to Soho and done Edinburgh and now gone to Melbourne. I think these are voices that women around the world are hearing and saying, this is no different than New York or Texas. So, Whereas the things I'm talking about, which is specifically Britain and India's relationship, at least with Empire, is specific, mm-hmm. is very specific and limiting. Do you do you have like what's your next show? Are you cooking up a, the next hour? You know, I given, given that we've discovered your your fascination with Empire, is this the is this the conclusion of the of that hour, or will you tour that hour for a few years while you write the next one? And what will be the theme of that? What will There's be? something I'm beginning to discover, particularly doing a whole hour, is discovering bits within the hour that's going off in a different tangent. I talk about how my wife. Uh, when she, at dinner, because I've been married 12 years, calls, my dog's name is Caesar. She calls me and Caesar the same way to dinner. <laughs> right? And then 
I get upset at that. And then I say, if that's how you feel about me, why don't you get Caesar to pay the home loan? To pay him, get him to pay off the mortgage. And sure. then Caesar says, yeah, the rates are quite good now. <laughs> and then from there, I found a bit about your housing market. You yes. Know, the thing yes. we talked about earlier. I don't know where that will go, but there's, a, there's something there that just comes out of an offshoot that I'm discovering over the last two, three days. If it becomes something, that will be a little bit. And then if I find 10, 12 things like this, it's like, how do you weave it mm-hmm. together into a set? Because mm-hmm. it also now is sitting into a conversation of a talking dog. <laughs> you know, from there, you're going to a chat about Britain's real estate. Like, but I'm finding things yes, that I didn't yes, know okay. were there, you know. And I think I've never figured out stand-up comedy, you know. I've never figured out, meaning with a script, beginning, middle and end. You take characters down a journey, you write the end, you're done, right? You go with actors, you revise it, you shoot it, you're done. This never ends. This never ends. You do an hour, you'll find three more minutes in it. And then like, what do I do? I throw it away? You don't throw it away. So this is like, you're ruined for life. It's like a drug. Because you, if you just go and repeat the exact hour, then it's memorization. Then it's back to my Indian high school. Sure. Then it's the worst aspects of it because you memorize, you didn't have fun. The joy is the finding. And you find, and then you're like, what do I do with it? And maybe you know, Stuart, because you've seen the best. You've toured with the best. You're on the other end of the spectrum, you know. Maybe well, the, I think, oh, that's very kind of you to say, uh, but I think that I, I often draw uh, a certain amount of comfort from the fact that that experience of the joy is in the finding. The joy, I completely agree with that. The joy is in the finding. As soon as a bit absolutely works every time, I lose interest in it. Yeah. I don't want to do it again because that bit works. I want to discover and you probably to my detriment as a coin. I'm more interested in finding. So what I, what I draw comfort from is the idea that everyone draws comfort from the finding and Russell Peters at Wembley Arena is probably the best bit of that gig for him is is the tiny new bit that he just tucked in because he thought of it in the limo earlier that day. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that is the same pleasure. It's the same pleasure, whether, you know, if it's you or me in in Soho to 100 people or something, as if we're playing Wembley. And that's all right to do, right? That's the finding that... That I'm not no, somehow... No, no, you're, yeah, yeah. When you say that's all right to do right, I felt like you were asking for my permission. I am. No, well, you can't. I can't give it to you. Correct. Only you can give it to you. This is, this is the next Zen state. Yeah. This is how yeah. you become wizard level. Is but you, that's... You can only ask yourself for permission. That's the thing about sort of my education system, right? It's yeah. just that <laughs> you have to seek permission to be creative. It's almost like it's... A, I'm being allowed to play. And you almost have to ask a seasoned comedian, am I allowed to play? You know? Yes. Because uh, I'm discovering that in this culture because people are okay because they're so creative from a very young age. They're playing in their heads all the time, right? So, so I'm discovering that comfort that it's okay to do that. And, that, and I, I, all of us have this problem. If you've got 10 Indian comedians in a room and you're like, you know, you grew up in a culture where you save money and you study hard. You know, and which is why we have so many doctors and engineers and accountants and IT people because it's a, it's a thing. You're, you've memorized stuff and you know how to do this one thing well. Here we're in a creative profession, right? But we're still Indian in the way we think. So when you've got that hour, you think, this is my hour. This is, I'm going to repeat it and make a living and buy a house and it's an hour. And if you've got 10 of us in a room, I wish 10 British comedians would slap us. <laughs> just slap us just, just to make us better comedians it's yes. just to unshackle us and say 
yes, you did not have a creative education, but we're telling you it's okay to go out there and... and the Comedians Comedian podcast officially now grants you and every other comedian <laughs> listening to this the permission to try things, to experiment, <laughs> Thank and you. to be your own masters. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think it's time to be a, to start with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I was going to ask about the elements of the creative process that you find the hardest or the most unforgiving. Obviously, one of your, one of your preoccupations is this idea of uh, giving yourself permission to think outside of the mm. box, to, mm. to, you know, to, to let go of the, the sort of the desire to have a thing that works and stick to the thing. What other, what other things do you find particularly challenging? Or what, a good way of asking this question maybe is, what sorts of things do you see other comics do that you think, I wish I could do that, I aspire to, to that element of comedy? Not care about the laugh? You know, like I've seen like masters of comedy, and I, I bet if I came to see one of your gigs, all the people that, all of you guys that do it a lot and gig a lot are more interested in the story. Like, I think they embed themselves in the story. And I don't know where the concentration comes from. Maybe it comes from yoga or wherever, I don't know. Or just spending the day drinking. I don't know where it comes from. Or being distracted, because all of those help. But not being lured by the laugh, but by the story. Because if you, if you ignore the laugh, the mechanics go away. And then you think, oh, this is just two people having a conversation. Or I'm having a conversation myself. And I've just discovered a new bit. Now, the trick is... Sometimes when the lights are on, it's Soho in your eyes and you're trying out a new bit and no one's laughing, you think to yourself, oh, now I'm just, like, now I've lost them because I didn't care for the laugh. Great. Now they're not laughing. <laughs> but now I'm in an alien conversation with myself. I'm just, I'm just enjoying myself. I can't see them. It's just a patch of dark. They're not saying anything. They're not laughing. I have these big yellow lights in my face. At least at the company store, you can see some people because the mm. lights are red. And you're like, what am I doing now? I've lost them. I'm just in a moment with myself. And maybe that's okay. You know, like maybe... So just discovering the, the line between where to just be hungry for the laugh as a shallow person, uh, which I am often, and just remembering that it's the stories what they're laughing at. What that also helps to do is you're not tied to a word or a punchline if the context of the story is larger. Um, I'll give you an example. I have a section that wasn't working at all in the build-up to Soho about how uncomfortable we are in India talking about sex, but we have a billion people. So when cultures that are okay talking about sex, like yours, come and see this, they're like, there's a lot of sex going on, man. They're shagging, which is the word you guys have here. Shagging. And we said, no, no, sure. Said, and you're like, where are all these children coming from? God, namaste. <laughs> you know, we said, and I got so focused on the mechanics of what the British person was saying to me and how I was hiding the sex and how I would play that out and the individual mm -hmm. lines. I forgot that's not what's important. What's important is you're hiding the fact that you have a billion people. Every night have a different conversation. Yes. Yes, trust that that idea is funny enough that it doesn't matter how you say what it. What words, exactly. And yeah. I was, every night I got stuck in my head on how to build to Namaste because one night in Bethnal Green, Namaste got the laugh. Yes. And I was like, oh, I must somehow get there. Whereas that's not the joke. The joke is the British person could say anything. He could just look absurd at people behind 
having sex. You've set that image in people's heads. Trust the people. It took me a long time. Still takes me a long time. Will take me tonight. It'll be hard, you know. Like um, again, confidence, education. I think it's a lot of those things. But um, I always jump the gun and think, "Oh, I found the bit. The N word is funny." No, 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 no. That's never the thing. Um, Thank you. That's a that's a really good exploration of that idea. Absolutely, I totally agree with you. I mean, I don't even know if it's actually. I just stumbled on a bit that had an extended bit. Um, and now it's working because I I just stopped ignoring the lines, and I do, I don't know if there's any insight here, but it's just you were asking what's difficult. I found that very difficult. That yes, that cling on to that word and get to that word somehow and make it an act, and people are laughing. Get to namaste. Get to namaste. No, that's not the. And again, it's about how we think about storytelling because I grew up with so much rote memorization, memorize, 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 that. Even Shakespeare plays, when we would study in school, our teachers would say, memorize, rather than just understand what was in the play. So to break that and to think, story, story is bigger. Doesn't matter how you act it out. Maybe you won't get to a namaste. Maybe you'll say something else to the British person. Doesn't matter. That confidence takes me a while. I'm inherently a terrified person. I'm in a new culture. So yeah, that takes me a while. And you're happy. As a comedian? Um, my wife said... You're, you're usually miserable on your show days. And, and I, I don't disagree with that. She said, you, should, you do this for now eight years. Shouldn't you enjoy it given it's taken up so much of your life? It's taken up so much of our life. So much time when you could have been with friends, etc. You should enjoy. I don't know what it is. I, <laughs> I, this is why I like your country so much because I've come across other comedians, famous comedians in the country who feel the same. I feel that sort of connect, you know, that there's, that you guys also derive no joy <laughs> from this. Like, you, I mean, used to it, we'll have a great gig and people will come and hug you and in your head, we'll be, that bit at 20 minutes didn't work. And then I went into that bit, didn't, didn't work. That whole sort of, oh, I've done it for a while, let's celebrate, let's make you a god. Like, I come from a culture where sudden success will also lead to, like, like sudden celebration. Our Bollywood stars are like gods, right? Mm. I mean, I'm not saying they work any less hard than British actors, but the fact that it's just work, it's work and you're trying to get mechanics right and it's okay to be miserable, that's new for us. Mm. Which is why like, you know, I mean, Veer is, is a huge celebrity in India, huge celebrity. Um, and I think that if he had an off night, they would forgive him. And they would still like think he was a genius, etc. But here... The comedian would not celebrate that night. He would go home and he'd be like, oh, I'm the worst. I'm just, it would eat him away, you know, like, and I love that. I love that. Um, so I don't know. I think it was, uh, I think, I don't know if, I think it's probably in, inappropriate now to quote Woody Allen, given the world we live in now, but fair enough. Uh, I don't know anything about a private human being and an artist, but as an artist, he had quoted that every day you write something and if it's a little less horrible, you go to bed a little bit happier. So I think that's how I look at the writing. If it's a little less horrible, um, I think the only thing I can now tell is when I'm being horrible on stage and to stop and acknowledge that and move on. At least that realization I now have. But happy is a tricky one. Happy is a, is a, is a tough one. I'm also 42, right? So... Uh, I, I played Switzerland with Ben Norris 
And Ben, I think at one point, turned and said, you know, at 40, he's 45. And he said, you know, at some point, you should think about retiring or something like At some point, I started talking about retirement, you know, like, what's the next step? And so you think to yourself, but at the same time, this is a profession where people go on into their 70s. And, you know, it's uh, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not. I mean, happy is a strong word. I don't know if I'm happy, but I don't know what's next. I think what keeps me going is just the discovery of the new bits in every show. Um, and I've never been a smart business guy. And I know as an Indian person, I should be. But a lot of things have just fallen into place. But I've never planned it. I don't have a comedy company. I, um, I'm kind, I'm, you know, I'm fortunate to have agents here and in Bombay. But everything just happened accidentally. And so... I don't have a plan for the next hour or um, there's talk of Edinburgh this year. So, so now the question is just pacing yourself like five nights. If you can do it, can you do it for 30 nights? And so I'm thinking in small blocks and also, can I find two more minutes here? So I don't, I may be penniless by August. I have no idea because <laughs> London's expensive. So, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I've just found that if I, if I keep the thought process small and also because I'm not that intelligent, it's easy for me to have limited thought process. It's easier. It's, it's easier, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm just rambling. Sorry. No, 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 it's lovely. It was, the, um, I was just waiting because you kept being fascinating. So I kept being quiet to let you keep being fascinating. And then just at that last pause, I was going to say, Thanks, man. And officially, <laughs> officially finish it. And then just before I could, you went, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> Which was the perfect end. So that was Anuvab. Loads more to hear from him on the private podcast, which you two can join at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And if you can't remember that, thanks to a very canny listener called Laura Serbin, you can also get a redirect to that site by going to cashforgoldsmith.com. But I do feel a bit, although it makes me laugh, I feel it's a bit grabby. Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit on the nose. Give me your money. So uh, uh, that's where you can find out more from Anavab and everyone recently, Sophie Willem. She's got some extra stuff on there, uh, as well as all those other projects that I mentioned before. Thanks for listening. I'm going to have a bit of a post amble at you shortly. Um, but for now, do remember to check out Anivab at this year's Edinburgh Festival if you're going. And join the Facebook group. You can get involved with all sorts of uh, back and forth projects, uh, all sorts of things to get stuck into there with the, God, what are we on now? 6,000? Almost 6,000? More than, I think it's 6.2? I mean, it's an awful lot of people, a lot of fans of this show. And they're, uh, that's completely free, of course, because it's just a Facebook group. But it is private. So when you join up, just tell me, answer a couple of fun questions on there. And that helps me sort out the scammers uh, from the genuine fans. You can join the Facebook group and we can uh, have a bit more of a conversation about some of the stuff that is coming your way in the near future. Oh, what a week. I've been busy. I've been really busy. I'll post Amble at you in just a second. But for now, that concludes the podcast. So listen, this is this post Amble. I've got a couple of emails to read out. They're mostly going to take up the time for this because I've just had some beautiful emails recently. This is from a listener called James. I came to see you in... Look, forgive me, because this is very complimentary towards me, but there's something else in it that I want to talk about. Um, I have cut some of the more gushing stuff. 
He says, I came to see you in Northampton last week. I was surprised by your physical performance. Precision, I'd call it. I did not expect it to add so much to the fantastic material, but it did, man, it did. I could see the energy you were focusing in different places, sweeping moves, puckish little head flicks. The hair is the right hair. Look, we're going to move past puckish little head flicks. <laughs> now, that's maybe a new T-shirt. But music to my ears. The hair is the right hair. Thank you, James. I'm definitely less funny after a haircut. I've always thought because I look too slick. Uh, he says, so look, you don't pack everything you are into your podcast. You've got so much more going on. This is because at the, in the post-amble of last week's show, I talked about, uh, I opened up to some feelings of jealousy about other people's podcasts. And I wondered if that was a good idea at the time, but a lot of people have said some very positive things. He says, I'm constantly driven by nemeses. Every fucking job I've had. Now that's either a spectacular 25-year run of bad luck, or I sort of need that nemesis figure. He says, it's bullshit. I need to carry on being the most me I can be and realising myself to my fullest and dreaming up new fullests to realise the end. He says, no need to reply to this. I just wanted to let you know I really loved Like I Mean It. The performance, the controlled whips of energy, the strong, quiet sections, and the new show's got a lot of great stuff going, clearly. The, the Shackleton line, timeline bit, mwah. Well, I agree. I also think that's mwah. I mean, that's a whole other thing. It's, it's fast becoming the best bit of the new show, the Shackleton bit, which if you've seen it, you'll go, yeah, yeah, it really is. So here's the question. Do I put the best bit at the beginning or the end? Do I put it at the start to sort of set the tone? Or do I end it on that bit to finish on a super memorable bit? Answers on a postcard, please. Um, he goes on. This is, this is the finish of his thing. He says, the pod and your delicate, responsive and occasionally bold interviewing skills, uh, not to mention your instinct for encouraging and enthusing with fellow comics, show there's more than enough positivity in support in you for everyone who needs it. It doesn't diminish us. It nourishes us. And if you and I need that bit of nemesis grit to make the pearl, well, that's how it is. James, thank you. I really appreciate that. Not just because of the uh, very pleasant things you've said about the act. And it's always very, very satisfying to... I've got some quite nice fan mail as a result of the touring shows I've been doing. And uh, I really appreciate all of that. But also, you're right. Maybe we do need the grit of a nemesis to get to the pearl. Maybe that is just... Come on, we can't all just be infinitely happy and creative at the same time. Maybe you do need to occasionally get really wound up and feel jealous of things. As long as it's done in a sort of safeguarded, calm manner, maybe it's absolutely fine. Thank you, James. I also want to briefly thank Darren Govey, who sent me a kids track uh, by a comedy band, which was, uh, <laughs> what is it called? Um, I think it's called Better Than You. And it's a, it's a very funny, uh, <laughs> very funny song. I'll link to that on, the, on Twitter. Um, I... I, I was going to tell you something else. I'm in Newcastle tonight, as I mentioned, and uh, something funny happened last time. I was here whereby I lost my car in a car park, and I didn't even know which car park it was, and my phone had died, and it was a big, long... I mean, you know, the story doesn't go anywhere. It's just an example of me being a dick that I thought you might enjoy. And then, moments ago, I got this email from a lady called Tori Burton. I, will, I haven't edited this down, so I'm just going to whiz through it. Bear with me. She says, Stu... I said I wouldn't be in touch again until I'd done two things, performed and sent you some clams. Well, this is my celebration for the one I've been dreaming of writing. She said earlier in the email that she's from Prague. I don't know if she's from Prague or is just in Prague. But she says, um, firstly, I'm sending £2 a month. I want to make, uh, I'm going to make some bonus donation when I get paid. However, I've listened to everything like I'm in the conversation related so hard to people and their methods that I thought I must have this. I've cried with the podcast, shouted at it, disagreed with it, clapped my hands and spat out tea. Last night, 
I was asked to do one 20-minute set. I haven't done that before, or any stand-up at all. Jesus, Tori, jumping at the deep end. She said, I just listened to the Angela Barnes episode, and she says I never moved on to ten minutes until I'd totally got five down, and I thought, fuck. But then a few minutes later, she said, but I wish I could take more risks. Well, I didn't make the gig I told you about in my last email months ago, and I felt like a bellend since. Do they have the word bellend in Prague, or is that from the podcast? We had a tough year here and life felt like it took the funny out of me for a while, but I know full well for every time this happens, content is breeding in the background. It is. I never turned off the writing in my mind. Everything in life is funny eventually. I think we can all see where this is going. Tori continues. So for my first time, I had a nice room of 20 or 25 people, a mic, lights, etc., all like in my imagination. Everyone howled. I killed it, I believe. So they said... Two hours later, they asked me to do it again, about 40 people by then, so I just did it, and I got to test out loads of different methods. I was right about myself. I can write. I can improvise. It was good. I have been born. She goes on to say about she's going to keep working, open miking, try and get to the fringe. Um, uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm 36 nearly. I better get the fuck on with it. True story. Whooping and cheering goes, I made a funny. I am born. Oh, there's some more stuff there, but I just wanted to finish off this post amble today, particularly in the spirit of um, of the energy that we talked about in the exploding scene in India and how it's just full of all this kind of vitality and energy. What a wonderful sentiment. Thank you, Tory Burton. You are born. <laughs> this is beginning to sound a bit Scientologist. So um, I, I'm not going to go into that uh, anymore. Um, she says, everything feels right about this. I'm very excited. I could bang on forever. And you were the first person I wanted to inform from all the serious hours in my ears. Thanks, 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 Tory Burton. Well, Tory, what can I say? But hey, you're welcome. <laughs> I, I, it, that just put such a spring in my step all day. I will add you to the list of people who've been given a nudge of some sort by this podcast to get into it. And thank you for telling me. More power to your elbow and congratulations to anyone out there who has taken a risk of this sort and thought I can do it, I can do it and done it and then got born. Get yourself born, people. That's all for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.